0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, This is a passage of Scripture I know is very, very familiar to all of us. And tonight we're going to continue our study of the doctrine of the church, and we come to the ordinances of the church this evening. Now, the ordinances are two they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are two memorial ceremonies that the Lord has given us in the church in order that we might be reminded and have some very important pictures of our faith in Christ. Now, I'll tell you, normally, I wouldn't preach this type of message on our Lord's Supper evening. We always do have, try to do, is have some kind of a tie-in to the Lord's Supper and the message that I preach. But the one this evening is going to be just a little bit more technical than other times, is we're going to explain why we practice the Lord's Supper the way that we do here in Berean Baptist Church. We uh, we observe ordinances, and the ordinances, well, the word ordinance, we look at that for just a minute, actually means to put in order, and um, an ordinance is something that has been decreed or commanded. Now, baptism, for instance, is commanded by Christ, we find that in the Great Commission, just before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave the the great commission in which he told told us to go and preach the gospel, and one of the things he said there was to baptize people, so that is a command. Then we also have the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper is found in three of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then it's further explained in 1 Corinthians, um, the supper was given by Jesus on the night of the... Uh, last Passover that he observed with his disciples uh, just before he was crucified. Sometimes, of course, that's called the Last Supper. And it is indirectly commanded in the uh, gospel accounts, but we come to 1 Corinthians and we find that the Apostle Paul, who, of course, was not present when Jesus instituted the supper, was given a special revelation at a later time, about uh, what the Supper is about and, and how that we are to keep it, and that was conveyed by Paul to the Corinthian church. Now, normally, when we study the ordinances, we would start with baptism because that was the first one that was given, and it's also a prerequisite to membership in the church and also to the participation of the Lord's Supper. So I'm kind of reversing things and going against the grain uh, because this is our regular time to observe the supper on this particular Sunday night, so I thought I would take advantage of that and we would teach on this particular topic. Now, if you look in First Corinthians uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse number 23, the Apostle Paul talks about how he had, as he says here, received this information from the Lord. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, how many of you have a red-letter Bible? Just about everybody has a red-letter Bible. Okay, I think this chapter's interesting to us because it has these words that Paul repeated here in red letters. And this is not a revelation that was given to Paul. As it said he was, uh, when, he was, when the Lord was on the earth... Because Paul wasn't present, he wasn't even saved at the time that the Lord's Supper was given. But these are words quoted directly from Paul that Jesus spoke to him when he gave him this revelation. Now when we speak of ordinances, it's it's proper to say that anything that Christ commanded is actually an ordinance. And that's because the word does mean a decree or a command. But from a theological and a uh, historical context... Baptists have considered that there are two ordinances that are particularly to be observed in the church. Now, I find it interesting that if you like American history and you like to study church history in America, which is one of the things that I like to do, is that it's interesting to me that in the frontier days of our country, there was a difference uh, of opinion among Baptists on, on this particular issue. Now, there are some people who think that Uh, The difference in early Baptists was over the doctrines of grace, and that's what they divided over, but that's not true. For the first 300 years of American history, all Baptists were agreed on the doctrines of grace, the very same things that we teach here in Berean Baptist Church. The division between them were the ordinances. Some of them believed that there were actually up to nine different ordinances that the church was to celebrate, and then others Like we are today, we believe that there are only two. And still in Appalachia, uh, the hills of of the eastern part of our country, you'll find that there are still some Baptists that practice another ordinance, which is foot washing. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, We're not going to practice foot washing anytime soon. We've kind of settled on this, that there are only two ordinances that are baptism and the Lord's Supper, so I'm not going to take the chance of your smelly feet. We're not going to be washing any feet tonight. Then I might also add that we don't call these sacraments. We call them ordinances. And some people ask, well, what's the difference between a sacrament and an ordinance? Well, Roman Catholics and Protestants practice sacraments they believe in sacraments and the sacrament is actually something that conveys some sort of grace on the participant now the roman catholics look at the grace that comes in uh, the observance of the supper which is their mass is a is a what they call this or their eucharist and all of that that um, they believe that the grace that's conferred is actually necessary for a person's salvation. So taking this is a part of what you do to help save you. Now, Protestants look at it a little bit differently. They take a mystical view of it, but they still do believe that there is some type of grace that's conferred upon those that participate. Well, we reject that idea, especially the one of the Roman Catholics, because uh, we can't believe that there is a literal means of grace in something that we do here, so that if you don't partake of the supper, then you can't be saved. This has nothing at all to do with your salvation. We don't receive grace from partaking the Lord's Supper. Now, we may uh, feel a sense of peace when we take it, and we may feel consecrated as we take it, and we should. We may be humbled by it, but we don't receive grace from it. Now, in looking at the ordinances, baptism uh, reflects or pictures the death of the old man and then the new life that we have in Christ. We saw that... Today, as we had a baptismal service, the person goes under the water, and we'll talk about it more next week, but the person goes down under the water, and that symbolizes, one of the things it symbolizes is that they have died to their old way of life, and then when they come back out of the water, that says that, well, I have believed in Christ, and I'm going to walk in the new life that I have in him. Now, the Lord's Supper is at least similar to that piece of it, and that is that we picture the new life that we have in Christ and the need that we have to have an attachment to him for the nourishment, the spiritual nourishment that we receive from that attachment. Now, we notice something that's readily apparent in the observance of the supper. We are studying this particular subject along with the doctrine of the church. And that's because the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. So let's start with that. What is the place of the Lord's Supper? Well, very simply stated, the place of the Lord's Supper is the church. W.J. Burris, in his book, The Lord's Table, made a, a very important observation. He said, if all could understand that the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance, specifically and exclusively a church ordinance, it would clear up much confusion and do away with much criticism of the Baptist position regarding it. Now, to that statement, I would add, that if people really understood what the church really is, then they'd have a much clearer picture of who should observe the supper and where the supper should be done. Now, for a discussion of what the church actually is, I'll refer you back to lesson number two that we had on the nature of the church if you want to uh, go back and uh, review that. So true Baptist churches have always taken a biblical perspective concerning the ordinances, and of course the Bible is the place that we have to go in order to learn how God would have us to celebrate this ordinance. Christ instituted the supper for the church, that it's only among born-again believers of the church that the supper can be celebrated. Now, it was first given to the 11 apostles as they constituted the first church and it was given on the evening of christ's final passover now first corinthians twelve twenty-eight says and god has set some in the church first apostles secondarily prophets thirdly teachers and so on so when jesus sat with his apostles they were his first church now, the Paul, Paul is speaking here to the church at Corinth and telling them how that the Lord showed him how the supper was to be observed, and he passed this information along to these people that are the Corinthian church. Oh, it's clear to us in the New Testament that it was never intended, the Lord's Supper is never intended for those that are outside of the church, that it is the church as it assembles and it commemorates the Lord's death. Now, since the ordinance is a church ordinance, this tells us that there are certain restrictions that are placed upon it. There are definite restrictions about who may participate. Now, let's talk about that next. Number two is the participants in the Lord's Supper. Who are the ones that should participate on a night like this when we come together and the supper is observed? Is everyone without distinction invited to take the supper, or do we differentiate between certain ones that would be in our congregation? Well, many times we have people that are not members of the church that are here. We may have guests that come from other Baptist churches. There might also be people that come from different denominations, and there might be some that are unbaptized Christians that are here, and there are some that may not be Christians at all. And so are we to invite all to come and partake indiscriminately when we take the supper. Well, there are actually two different positions that churches believe on this, and they separate along the lines of whether to practice open communion or closed communion. Now, sometimes that's called unrestricted and restricted communion. And we're going to look at it a little bit differently tonight. We're going to first take a look at the open view, and then in the second part, we're going to talk about the Baptist view of communion. Now, first of all, then, is the open view. Well, this has changed somewhat over the years um, to a practice among modern churches that really can't be found in the New Testament Scriptures. There are some churches that make no distinction at all about whether a person is saved or lost. I mean, it's, it's, it's as if the thought never crossed their mind that there might be people that would come into the church on a night like this and they've never actually trusted Christ. They have no faith in Him. And so these churches will allow, and sometimes they will even encourage, that anyone can participate even though they may never have professed faith in Christ. And so they... Invite them to take of the bread and the cup as those are passed to the rest of the people. Well, that idea is completely foreign to the New Testament. Participation in the supper indicates that a person has partaken of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ by faith, that they have been cleansed by his blood, that they're actually born again and they do have a relationship with Christ. So even if we could make a... A case for the open view, there isn 't any historical precedent for an unbeliever taking the supper. Now, those that have held to the uh, open view in a historical sense would never countenance this i mean uh, they they wouldn 't take what 's happened in the modern church that just allows indiscriminate participation for either the saved or the lost and This would be clear to us because the warning that Paul gives in first corinthians eleven twenty seven He says that it's possible for a born-again believer to take of the supper unworthily. Well, that warning would have no meaning at all if the supper was opened up even to those that were unregenerate. So the Scripture tells us that anyone that denies Christ is an infidel and that the unbeliever is actually guilty of trampling the blood of Christ. And that's because he denies the worth of this infinite sacrifice that Christ has made for sin. And so it would be totally impossible for us to come here tonight and to honor Christ in this supper while at the same time rejecting the worth of the sacrifice that he made. So one thing we'll never do, we will never knowingly permit unbelievers to take of the supper because that would actually be blasphemy. And that's a fact that's recognized by, by all Christians throughout the centuries, even those that favor open communion. They would never extend it to unbelievers. Well, there is a little bit of a qualification in that, though. If you know anything about Protestant theology, the qualification is that they do allow children that are baptized, even though they have never actually become believers, they haven't professed faith in Christ, they believe that the children of the believers that have been baptized that of course would be through infant baptism that when they're baptized that they would have the right to take the communion even though they're not actually born again. And the reason that they do that is they be, they believe that the children of believers are in the covenant community and they bring them into the visible church. Now, all of that is really a misunderstanding of what the church actually is, but they do permit it in this case where you could have an unbeliever if it's the child of a believer, one that's been baptized into their church. And then they also allow those who come from uh, other evangelical churches that have received their form of baptism, they'll let them participate. Well, that brings up an interesting point for us as Baptists because both Baptists and Protestants agree that baptism is a prerequisite for church membership and also for participation in the supper. Now, the problem here is that Protestants believe that sprinkling is a valid baptism. But Baptists say that there is no valid baptism unless it comes by immersion, and it must be upon a believer that you can't have a real baptism unless the person has professed profess faith in Christ, and they have been baptized by immersion. And so the logical conclusion of that is that Baptists believe that Protestants do not have real baptism. They're not truly baptized, and so therefore, they wouldn't be eligible for the communion. Then you have others who believe that the ordinances have no relationship to one another, and they only require faith as a prerequisite. A few years ago, I interviewed a Baptist missionary, and on this particular subject, he'd filled out one of our uh, missionary questionnaires, and this is one of the questions that we ask. We asked, would you knowingly administer the supper to an unbaptized believer? And this man said, yes. And he said, that's because there shouldn't be any restriction placed upon the communion. So he was open communion. And he didn't even really believe that that church membership was necessary for it, Now, to me, that that registered such a grievous misunderstanding what the church actually is that I couldn't support a missionary that didn't even understand what church is all about. It was not right on the doctrine of the church, so we had to reject him. So that's a wrong viewpoint, and it has the effect of destroying the communion of the church as an ordinance, and it changes the meaning of it. It changes it to something, something just for fellowship rather than Uh, something that would be taken between the membership of the local church. And then there are also others that believe that everyone must make up their own minds about whether they take it. That the church, really doesn't have any say-so. That we bring it here, we offer it to everybody, and you make up your mind whether you want to take it or not. Well, we would strongly deny that because we believe it's the church's responsibility to guard the table that we're a church body, and the church body interprets the truth and has the authority, not the individual. That lies in the church. So the open communion view does this. It opens it up for either everybody to partake, or with a slight modification, they determine which class of individuals can participate. Well, on the other hand, we have the Baptist view of communion. And I call it the Baptist view because this is the way that our churches have understood this for centuries. And the modern perversions that you find to the supper in some Baptist churches today are not the historical view of Baptist. Now, by Baptist, I mean true New Testament Baptist churches that have a Bible view of the communion. And we believe that there are certain restrictions that are to be observed. So we hold to either closed or close communion, in which we make it the first requirement that the participant be a baptized member of a New Testament Baptist church. So that makes us restricted communionists. Well, let's qualify the meaning a little bit here because there are certain assumptions that are being made in order for participation. First, the communicant has to be a regenerated person. So if you want to make a note of this term... We believe in what is called credo baptism. Now, we, we deny that there's any lost person that can participate for the reasons I started, stated earlier, but he must be a baptized person by which we assume that he must be regenerated because only believers can be baptized. Credo means I believe. So we practice credo baptism. So it must be an actual baptism which means that we deny anybody to the supper who has a faux baptism, either by the wrong mode or by the wrong administrator. So that would mean that no pedo-baptist, I'm giving you some good terms here, no pedo-baptist can be admitted to the supper. Now, what's a pedo-baptist? Well, a pedo-baptist is someone who baptizes infants. So no pedo-baptist, someone who has been baptized as an infant, can come to the supper. Now, let me... Uh, stop here to explain a little bit that there are many protestants that will allow baptists to come to their communion because they will accept immersion as being a valid baptism they accept that as well as sprinkling they don't actually believe the mode is important so sprinkling effusion uh, immersion all three of those are acceptable ways to baptize But Baptists don't return the same courtesy because we don't believe, again, that sprinkling is a real baptism. And that's what I mentioned just a moment ago. So we wouldn't admit them on the basis that they're not members of Baptist churches and they couldn't actually be members of their own churches if their membership depended upon a true baptism because baptism is a prerequisite for church membership. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. Now, R.L. Dabney who was a very capable 19th century Presbyterian theologian, very, very articulate, uh, a very good man, he argued that the logic of Baptists on this point was the only thing that's consistent. Now, he didn't agree that we were right about it, but he said this is the only way that a Baptist can act. It's the only thing you can do to be consistent about it if you actually do believe that immersion is necessary for Baptism and you only admit baptized persons to the, to the communion, then you could never allow somebody who had been sprinkled for baptism to come to the communion. That only makes sense because you don't believe that that is a real baptism. Then you have some Baptists like John Piper, who doesn't agree that baptism is necessary for church membership, and so he has a totally different view than the historical Baptist position. Then let me add that a Baptist should never take communion with a pedo-baptist because their belief does disservice to the church and also to the doctrine of baptism. The ordinance is a church ordinance, and so you can't take it out of a New Testament church. But going on beyond that, we say you must be born again, and we say you must be baptized, and you must be a member of a New Testament Baptist church. Well, at this point, we have to make... Another distinction in the historical positions of Baptists. Among those that believe in a restricted communion, there are more, some that are more restricted than others. And so you have 2 subviews on how restricted the communion must be. So the first idea that Baptists have is that we have a closed communion. Now, some say that all that you actually need is to be a member of another Baptist church of like faith and order. So if you're here tonight and you came from another Baptist church that's in agreement with our doctrine here and you're in fellowship with this church, then those that believe in a closed communion would allow you to participate in the supper with them. So what they're actually doing is closing the communion to anyone except those that are members of Baptist churches. That's the closed view. The other view is called close communion, C-O-C-L-O-S-E, close communion, and this is actually more restrictive. Now, some people get the terms backwards and uh, they mix these up and say these a little bit differently, but this is the way that, that uh, I believe is actually the correct way that it's stated, that close communion Close communion means that we only take communion among those that we are in close fellowship with. In other words, the only ones that would be permitted to the Lord's table in our church would be those that we can judge their qualifications of fellowship. And the only ones that we're actually able to judge would be those that are members of our body, actually members of this particular church. Well, at first you might think, well, wow, that, that's, that's pretty radical. That's pretty tough policy. That, that doesn't even sound like it's Christian. That's kind of unkind, isn't it? Well, I think you need to hear me out before you pass judgment on what we believe. And let me say that we have a good reason for this. And it's not, very clearly hear me on this, it's not because we believe that we're better Christians than somebody in other churches. It doesn't have anything at all to do with that. We don't propose to pass judgment on the spiritual condition of any person that's outside of this church. And that's really the whole point. Now, there are two things that are critical. The Lord's Supper is a church ordinance. We've established that. And this is a local body of believers that have covenanted together to do the Lord's work in this location. And so here, as the Berean Baptist Church, we represent a complete, a full and complete body of Jesus Christ in this locality. So we have a very definite membership of believers. We've all coveted together to do God's work. And there's a special bond that exists between us as members of the same church that does not exist with people that are outside of the church. Now, what we do then is we guard the purity of the church as the body of Christ, And we're not able to do that with people that we don't know anything about. I mean, how could we regulate the observance of the supper with people that we don't know anything about their lives? Now, let me make very, very clear three important observations that vindicate the practice of close communion. Why do we do this? Well, we think the Bible teaches it. It gives the precedent for it. Now, number one is that Jesus' example vindicates close communion. Now, we take a look at the time that Jesus instituted the supper, and when he did, there were only, or on the night that he did this, there were only 12 men that were present. There were 12 apostles. And as we compare the gospel accounts, we find out that Judas, who was an imposter, Judas, who was the betrayer, who was an unsaved man, that he had actually gone out before Jesus came to this particular part of the Last Supper. So when they observed this part, Judas was not there. So we only have actually 11 men that were present when the Lord's Supper was instituted. Those 11 men are the real charter members of the first church. And this is true even though there were many other people that were saved at that time. And we know John the Baptist had baptized many people. The apostles of Jesus baptized We find that in the scriptures, that his apostles baptized, even though Jesus himself did not baptize. So there were many, many people who were actually saved during that time, but they were not permitted to come to the supper. They weren't invited to do this, and that's because the church had not been fully formed just yet. So when Christ instituted the supper, it was with those 11 men that represented the first church. So he didn't ask the man who owned the house where the meeting was to come in and have the supper with them. He didn't ask any of these other believers that were out there for them to come and have the supper. Now, for instance, there were even some that Jesus had sent out as witnesses of him. We find in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, After these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Those are all saved people, but none of those are invited to this supper. Now there are some who say that, well, we can't restrict the supper because it's the Lord's table and the Lord is the one who has the Uh, authority to invite people to his table and we say to that exactly precisely he's the one that invites people to his table and we don't have the right to invite anyone else and this is the example that he set for us secondly unity of doctrine vindicates close communion now i want you to look in your bible at the verses immediately preceding the text that we read 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 18. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. Paul says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Listen to verse 20. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, he's telling us there that you can't have divisions in the church and partake of the Lord's Supper. So one of the main stipulations for the proper observance of the Supper is that we have unity of doctrine. And the question has to be asked, then how do we have unity of doctrine with those that we don't know anything about? We haven't examined their doctrine. And one of the things that we don't do when you come in to visit Breham Baptist Church, we don't ask you to fill out a doctrinal statement. We don't say, now what is it exactly that you believe before you can attend here? So we've never done that. So we have people that come in that have all, all different kinds of beliefs. They may come from all different kinds of places. We don't know what they believe. We haven't questioned them. They haven't questioned us. And so we can't say that we've arrived at unity of doctrine with people that we don't know anything about. Now, those that are in the church, we are in agreement. We've examined doctrine. We don't have unity of doctrine with Protestant churches. Do you know why we're called a Baptist church? We're not a Methodist church. We're not a Presbyterian church. We're not a generic community church. We are a Baptist church. Why? Because we believe... Baptist doctrine, that's why we have the name on the door or on the sign out there. We believe Baptist doctrine, that's what differentiates us from others. And so how could we have unity of doctrine who see scriptures differently than we see them? We can't have unity of doctrine with them. We're Baptists because that's the thing that identifies us. So we're unified on these things. Now, I'm the one that's teaching you and I'm teaching you On this subject, this is one of those subjects that differentiates us from others. And we have unity in our doctrine on this. And as long as I'm preaching what the Bible says, then you stick with me. We all hang together on this. This is what the Bible says. And as members of the same church, we are actually mandated to have agreement over the scriptures. This is commanded for the New Testament church. We must have unity. Well, we know there are a lot of non-preferential issues that we may disagree on. And uh, I'm okay with those kinds of things. We may not agree on non-preferential things, but when it comes to the steadfast core doctrines of God's word, we must be in agreement with each other. We can't be divided and have a church. It doesn't work that way. Now, thirdly, church discipline vindicates close communion. Now, I want you to pay close attention now because this is the real clincher for why we practice close communion. Now, let's turn back a few pages to the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we'll look here at verse number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 11. You'll recognize this uh, as part of the study we had on church discipline. 1 Corinthians five eleven. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now looking at this scripture, this is not really all that difficult. But Paul is showing us here is that the church has no jurisdiction over those that are outside of the church. The only ones that we can judge are those who are a part of this body, and neither do we care to pass judgment on anyone else. I mean, how can we know the lifestyle of someone that just comes into our assembly off the street? I mean, doesn't this chapter show us... And as we go through 1 Corinthians on this subject, doesn't it show us that there is a standard that has been set for the proper observance of the supper? I mean, right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a list of sins that Paul says, if people commit these kinds of sins and they're called a brother, you don't permit them to come to the fellowship of the supper. So those that are outside of the church well, I don't care to track them down and determine whether they are or whether they are not committing any of these sins. That's not my business. And we're not accusing anybody of immorality by refusing them to supper. We're only saying that we don't have the capability of obeying Christ's command in this particular area, of looking at the lives of people and determining whether they are fit for the communion. We don't have the possibility of even obeying that command if we bring people from the outside that we don't know anything about. We have close fellowship with those that are members of our particular body. So we, we can't invite outsiders because we don't have a command from Scriptures to deal with them in this way. So how could they participate in the communion when we have no jurisdiction over them? Now hear me very carefully again. We're not saying that anybody on the outside of Berean Baptist Church is not a Christian. We're not saying that they aren't good people. In fact, there may be those on the outside that live better lives and are closer to the Lord and more consecrated than anybody that we have in our church. The whole point is, we don't know. We don't have any criteria to judge by and so we don't pass, in a, pass a, a judgment, we don't make any kind of assessment of that. Again, the fellowship is close here. And that's because we can observe each other's lives, we watch what each other do, what doesn't, and, and we understand whether we are in fellowship with one another, agreement over doctrine, all these other things, and we submit ourselves to the discipline of this particular church. So what do you do? Let me tell you what I did. When I first came to Berean, and I wasn't a member here many, many years ago, when I was just visiting the church here, I came, and at one of the Sunday night services, the communion was being taken. And what I did was to politely decline to take the communion. So when the bread and the cup were passed, I passed on it. And that was before I became a member. Now, Larry Jefferson at that time uh, was a deacon in the church, and uh, he was the one who served me that, and I passed it on by, and he had no idea who I was, but later he said, now there's somebody I know who was raised just like me, that I understood this particular issue, and so I didn't partake of the communion. So what we do here is that we pass the bread and we pass the cup down through the rows, and we're not going to slap anybody's hand if you take the communion, We're not going to do that. We're not angry at someone who takes the communion and they're not a member of our church. We're not angry about it. We've just let you know what our particular position is on this matter. And remember again, we haven't passed a judgment on anybody. We're not saying anybody's not a good Christian. It has nothing at all to do with that. It has to do with the fact that we are in close fellowship in this church, among this membership. And we know each other's lives. We can't have the Lord's Supper with those that we can exercise no discipline over. See, what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 would have no meaning whatsoever, none at all, when he said to to that church, when he says, don't take the supper with people who commit these sins. That wouldn't have any meaning at all if everybody indiscriminately was allowed to come in at the Lord's Supper time and take it. The command doesn't mean anything. Well, let me finalize this lesson tonight. Uh, I mean, there's much more that we could talk about, especially if we were going to look at the absolutely heretical views of this, like talking about the Roman Catholic mess of the mass with transubstantiation or with the disturbing view of the Lutherans with consubstantiation. You know, when I first was putting the message together, I thought, well, maybe I might uh, alliterate that and say the mess of the Mass with Roman Catholics and transubstantiation and the constipating view of the Lutherans with consubstantiation. But I'll let that pass, and we'll take that up at another time. Now, thirdly, thirdly, the preparation for the Lord's Supper. And this is a good place to follow up on some of the comments that I've just made. We're not trying to judge anyone from the outside. We couldn't do that because we have no basis. But let me say this that it's better for you to judge yourself before you partake of the Lord's Supper. It's much better for you to do that than to have me or someone else disinvite you from taking the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm talking to members right now. It would be much better for you to examine yourself. Now, notice this very familiar part in verses 28 and 29 of our text. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So what is the preparation for the supper? Well, here we have one part of it, a very important part of it, a solemn self-examination. And so it's the duty of every born-again, baptized believer and member of the church to examine himself before he comes to the Lord's table. And that's why we pause before the administration of the supper and we ask everyone to pray a silent prayer. So what we do is we give you time to get your heart honestly right with God before you partake of the supper. Now, this is one of the things I've kind of wondered about before. I do pause. You're familiar with that. And we'll do it in just a few minutes. We'll, We'll pause and I'll ask everybody, pray a silent prayer, confess your sins to God. And I always wondered, did I give you enough time? Because some of you may have a long, long list, and I just haven't given you enough time. So I'm going to trust that you got it all done in the little bit of time that I give you. But we give you the time to get your your heart honestly right with God. And the reason that we do that is because we don't want you to experience the chastisement that came upon the Corinthian church. You read these scriptures as Paul talks to them, and you find out, that there was very serious chastisement because they'd made a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And we don't want the Lord's chastisement to come on you. So there are two questions that you need to ask yourself before you come to the supper. The first one is, am I right with God? Am I right with God? Is there anything that hinders your fellowship with God? Is there anything that you're doing that is not God-honoring and God-pleasing? Now, I'm going to throw one out here. There are a whole lot of things that I could tackle in talking about things that are God-pleasing, but I'm going to throw one out for you. What about this? Do you tithe? Are you a tithing Christian? We don't pass out questionnaires for people to say, well, yes, I tithe, and I say, okay, well, you're permitted to the communion. But isn't that a command that God has given us, that we are to support our church? And if you come along and you say, well, you know, Lord, I do respect your death and I appreciate what you did for me and all that, but I really don't think it's worth giving my tithe, you're going to have a hard time convincing the Lord that you're really in fellowship with him. I don't think that you are. That's one thing Christians need to do. They need to tithe. But there are a lot of other areas of obedience that we could go into. Uh, there are things that you would need to conscientiously Very much consciously be aware of before you partake of the supper. Have you confessed your sins to God over these kinds of issues? Second question is, am I right with my fellow Christians? Is there anyone in the room that you have a grudge against? Is there anybody here that you would not give them the time of day? Now, you're going to be with them for eternity, or maybe not if you don't really have a forgiving heart. See, forgiveness and reconciliation are marks of a true Christian. So you can't be right with God if you're not right with them. Now, we've studied forgiveness in the last couple of weeks on Sunday morning, and we've learned, of course, that God has forgiven us of far more than we have we could ever pay. I mean, he, He's he's, he's Forgiveness of more than we could even ask for forgiveness for. Certainly far more than someone's done to us. So can you come to the table where Christ has demonstrated self-sacrifice and forgiveness? Come to the Lord's table without being a forgiving person. Now you need to examine yourself and see if you are in fellowship with other Christians of the church. Anything less is to do despite to the spirit of grace. And then let me fi- say this finally that there is no excuse not to take the supper. And again, I'm speaking to the members of the church. You have no excuse. Now, I've known some members that would take the information that I've just given you, and I, and I said, you have to have things right with people in your church. You must be right with God. And they say, well, I'm not right with God. I'm, I'm not right with my fellow Christians, and so I will refuse the supper. And they think that they've done something righteous, that that's a virtuous thing to do. I know I'm not right, so I refuse the supper. But the question has to be asked. Do you have the right to refuse to confess your sins to God and to get things right? And do you have the right to refuse to remember the Lord's death till he comes, which is exactly what the what the uh, supper is about, to remember? Do you have the right to do that? No, you don't have the right to do it. So you don't ha- you're not doing something virtuous and righteous by not partaking of the supper. You're actually doing something sinful. The Lord is never going to commend that. So you can't say, well, let's do evil that good may come. No, the Lord doesn't look at you doing something righteously, but doing something wickedly, exceedingly wicked. So we have to have our hearts right with God. So right now, when the supper before the supper is passed, you need to be right with God. You need to confess your sins and be right with your fellow Christians. So I hope that helps you to understand some of these important points about the supper. I mean, we have reasons for what we do. We, we just don't throw this thing out here and say, well, this is just the way we do it and we're going to stick with that. No, we have something in the Bible to back it up. We want to take the supper in the way that Christ would have us do it. It's a great privilege to come to his table. And we come here to honor the Lord's death until he comes. Now, we're going to move right into the observance of the supper tonight. So I'd like for our deacons, if you would, to go ahead and prepare... For the taking of the
0: of the supper. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally,